Yeah, welcome to the Wimlick Show, episode number 43, presented to you by Spriker Systems, Debt Agency and Bright Payments. Today, again, Brian Beck is our guest, talking about B2B e-commerce, success cases and unsuccess cases. Um, so we're going to learn in this episode a lot of um, denominators of success in B2B and what is really happening when B2B companies are transforming into the digital world. So have fun with Brian Beck. Brian, welcome to uh, Wimlex session number two after the very successful first session talking about B2B challenges, uh, especially in e-commerce in the US and uh, having you giving us some insights into the US market. So what, what happened over there? Uh, we, we found a lot of similarities between the European and the US market. Uh, uh, very interesting insights. We decided to do a second session uh, where we uh, focus a little bit more on specific B2B success cases in the US and, of course, uh, a reason um, for uh, for cases uh, without uh, the desired success. So for the listeners that uh, uh, did skip session number one, uh, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, um, uh, who are you? What do you do for life? Sure. Thank you, Alex, for having me again. I, I appreciate it. We had a great session the first time around. And Excited to be back. So I guess we I guess we had an engaging conversation. So you'll, you had me back. So thank you. <laughs> so my name is Brian Beck. Uh, I'm a 20 year, uh, gosh, 22 year now veteran of the e-commerce and digital transformation field here in the, in the United States. Um, most of my career, Alex, has been as an operator of e-commerce businesses for midsize and large companies, some e-commerce startups uh, here in the U.S. A lot of my work in the last five years has been on the B2B side. So my, my first 17 years in the field were all in, in really more in the e-commerce um, serving consumers, some B2B. But what I saw was, you know, about five years ago was the same kinds of opportunities that were available in the consumer side were now available on the B2B side. But yet the B2B side, in other words, companies selling business to business uh, through, through e-commerce and through digital means, a lot of companies weren't there uh, yet. They hadn't yet started. And so um, so I, uh, as I was getting into the field, I also um, decided to, uh, um, I was looking for something to refer people to, my clients to, um, in terms of reading material. And there wasn't anything in the market, really. So I wrote a book, <laughs> as of you, and uh, uh, I think you've written several. The um, we uh, put a book together. I put a, put a book together. It took three or four years, uh, and now I have a book uh, uh, entitled B "Billion Dollar B 2 B E Commerce," which was published in the spring of 2020, and um, it's all about digital transformation for um, uh, for companies in the B 2 B field. Uh, and there's a long way to go there, as you know, Alex. Uh, you know, companies really uh, taking advantage of all the aspects of digital for their business on the B 2 B side. Yeah, our our career parallels are, are are stunning. So the only missing piece is that uh, you have to found still a software company for uh, for yeah. commerce at B two B company. So, but maybe maybe we can find a way of working together here before sure. you do before you do this because we're heading now to the US. So before we are uh, deep diving into the success cases, uh, uh, um, I have uh, your book in front of me on oh. my Kindle, <laughs> uh, um, and there is like a, you you started your book uh, at one of the first pages, early pages within within Q and A session. And one of the first questions in the book is, what's the biggest challenge B2B companies are facing when it comes to e-commerce? Mm -hmm. And then your answer is, and I really like this one, one thing 
in action. So uh, I don't know when you wrote this book, but uh, from from the majority of cases you see so far, and you're also very active on the consultancy side, um, is this still true? No. Oh, yeah. I well, it, it it is true. Although, you know, as we get into situations like uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, that inaction is turning into action. I still hear it, though. I still hear uh, reasons why companies, um, you know, in, don't act, and it, it usually it really uh, ties to leadership, in my opinion. Um, when you look at the 50% still of e-commerce or B2B companies that don't have an e-commerce capability, particularly manufacturers, um, and you look at what, you know, why they don't, I think a lot of that ties to um, leadership and the, and the um, sort of the inaction or unwillingness to act. And I think, I think a lot of it is, um, is just based on fear and, and knowledge uh, gaps and, Just, you know, in the history, and I make this point in the book, Alex, you know, business has been just good enough, right, for these businesses where either they're shrinking slightly, they're growing just enough, the traditional channels have been working, and they're comfortable. And, you know, when you when you, um, when you you live with that for a long time, there's not necessarily an urgent desire to change uh, or need to change until something dramatic happens in with the business, whether that's you know, either customers saying to them, Hey, we're not going to buy from you anymore because there's, you know, there's no, you know, if you don't have e-commerce capabilities or something like COVID-19 comes along and says, all the doors are locked. You can't get in anymore. And now you have to use digital channels to interact with your customer. And so those, so I, I think COVID is the loudest call to action we've seen or heard in our lifetime for digital. And so yeah. I'm seeing I'm seeing movement now is what I'm saying the, the the urgency has gone up and it's it's really dramatic in some places so yeah we we also invented internally the term uh, CVP instead of MVP corona viable product now <laughs> it really counts yeah and it really works because with corona viable products you, you actually get you get rid of all this kind of lazy uh, uh, org layers that kind of uh, prevents you from getting getting things done uh, so the cvp is a real mvp that's kind of uh, we use it sometimes uh, so, i love that that's uh, great uh, and then i found another in the q a section i found another uh, um, uh, another thing you've you said there which is not which is kind of very un-american but i really like because it's very german uh, <laughs> there was one question Uh, is it ever too late for a B2B company to add an e-commerce operations? And like from an American, very positive perspective, I would have expected, no, it's, it's never too late. You can always act. You just have to be like faster. And you said, yeah, unfortunately, yes, it, it can be too late. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, and I think you, you're going to refer like later in this book to the Sears example, for example, because they acted too late and too little uh, too late. I think that sums it up a little bit. Um, It, it, can this really be the case already with B2B? So are there B2B areas from your point of view that are too late already? Or especially now with COVID, are, it is proven that they're not able to act because they didn't got even like an app or a website running uh, uh, in COVID. So you see too late cases in B2B already? Well, I think you're starting to see them emerge. Um, I think, you know, the too late is evident in B2C. And that's what informed my my uh, response to my own question there around, you know, at the beginning. Is is it too? Yes, I think I think it is um, too late for some companies to catch up because there's been a lot of shift already to digital channels. I look at Amazon Business, for example, on track to to achieve $52 billion in, in, in revenue in, um, 
in their B2B channel within a few years, 2023. And so I think, you know, that's just one example, though. I think you, you've got, I, I think the most at risk um, are uh, distributors who are in the mid market. Um, I think, you, you know, if you look at the numbers, I don't have them in front of me, Alex, but if you look at the numbers of distributors in the United States, it's been it's been shrinking. And why has it been shrinking? Well, I mean, there's a variety of reasons for that, but one one reason I believe, and we'll we'll see it through COVID, is um, is the fact that customers are diverting their purchases to other places. Um, they're they're not not a, there's no um, notion of loyalty like there was. You've got in, during COVID, I, I saw a recent statistic that said 50% of customers, B2B customers, are trying new suppliers during this time the challenge the, the notion traditional notion of loyalty has been challenged by the fact that the b2b buyer now has to go online to make purchases and they're discovering new places and new ways to make those purchases so is it too late i mean yeah the american reply would be um, no it's never too late come on you know get on the bus you can do it and you know what in general i, I still do think that's the case for a lot of companies but i will say that um for those that have resisted and have absolutely nothing in place, um, it's it. And if you don't, if you're resource constrained, particularly in COVID, if your business is going down, your capital uh, available is deteriorated because your business is deteriorated. You may, it may be too late for you. Um, I don't have any specific uh, examples to share with you, but I, but I, um, but I, I do. If you look at the numbers related to the the kind of the distribution counts in the U.S., you see it. You see it declining. I think you can also see it in the margins of some of the large distributors. Like if you look at the margin deterioration, for example, at Granger, which is one of the largest MRO uh, distributors, um, there's um, I think you're seeing that that pressure occur where you get the and you see you've seen this with the department stores in the United States, too, is kind of the leveling of of the, um, uh, uh, you know, pressure margin pressure that's been applied, which is which is and that's challenges to the business model. Right. Just consumers in that case being more empowered, more choice, shifting purchases to Amazon and other places. Mm, okay, uh, so let's uh, let's let's stop with like uh, the negative uh, negativity <laughs> here. <laughs> let's go. Let's go to success cases. Okay. And uh, you have uh, you have uh, presented some success cases um, in the book. And I think that's important to understand, uh, especially from a timeline perspective. So when those cases started, when what did they really do? What kind of competition they faced uh, when they started? Uh, maybe we can start with uh, Illumina. I think Illumina. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. That's, that's that's the name. A biotech manufacturer can you give us a background about the company and then how they transform from your point of view sure. into the digital reality well i i use illumina in the book several times because i think they've they, they've done a lot of things really well um through that whole process so illumina just to give a sense it's it's <laughs> they've been called the smartest company um uh, on the planet and the reason they that that they say that is um, they make genomic sequencing equipment. So this is this is equipment that sequences the human gene, or really any genome, DNA, right? And what their what their product does is it helps with research. It helps with all kinds of things, terrorism prevention. I mean, they have all kinds of. What it does is, it, you know, they they it's this is a research equipment manufacturer, biotechnology. So they can tell you, Alex, if you have, you know. Uh, heritage from places around the world, whether you're likely to get a certain disease. I mean, there's a whole series of things this equipment's used for. So they have this equipment they manufacture, and then they have uh, chemistry, which goes into the equipment. This is this is these are chemicals, really. They're used by their equipment's used by hospitals and research institutions, large universities, Stanford University, for example. Um, you know, use their products in research labs. And so 
when you think about e-commerce, and this is they're a public three and a half billion dollar company. When you think about e-commerce, this would be one of the last companies you'd think about, right? Like that, hey, you know, this is you know, not selling shirts online, their equipment sells for millions of dollars. And these the audience for this product are researchers and procurement teams and things like that. So they're kind of an unusual, what you call typical case for e-commerce. But when but their journey, I think, is is such a um, an impressive um, way of describing how to do things well, taking a traditional B2B business, you know, where they have salespeople calling on Stanford University, for example, and transforming it and enabling it with with commerce capabilities. And it's not just about the e-commerce transaction. It's also about how do you personalize the whole experience for that researcher and for that procurement team inside that organization so that you're delivering the right kinds of products to them. So today, um, you know, and, I, and we can talk about the steps they took, but um, today they expect almost 50, actually more than 50% of their business to be transacted through their e-commerce and related systems. And this is not a small company. And this is about three years after they launched their e-commerce and, 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 and commerce enablement capabilities, which by the way, also include things like punch out and EDI and some other things, but they're, it's all tied together into a single system um, that that is it's really it's really a compelling story. So I'm happy to go into details with you if you'd like. So, but but how how could they manage like to add this commerce capability um, while having a, a, a field force like real people uh, reaching out? Um, that is like from what I understand from B two B the uh, strongest blocking force for commerce <laughs> or like uh, <laughs> because uh, whenever you talk with uh, with the um, with the director or VP of distribution or sales, it's like, no, 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 we should not push too hard into commerce because that um, affects like the bonus, uh, uh, <laughs> the bonuses of our uh, yeah. field force uh, and maybe like uh, go into a market where we're not active yet. Uh, that's a much better proof for, uh, for e-commerce. So how did they manage this kind of um, org transformation? There you go, Alex, get in German. You're going to the negative again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but I, I, I try, but we try to find out. Or what? Uh, there must be like a, there must be like a common success. <laughs> I'm, te here. I'm, I'm teasing you, but the uh, no, but uh, seriously, uh, that is actually the point you raise is a really good one. It is one of the chief friction points in digital transformation and rolling out of e-commerce for B 2 B is that is that potential conflict with the sales team because the sales team can. If this is if you and this is a, you know we talk about Illumina as as, as really a poster child for this, um, this is one of the chief reasons why digital uh, rollouts, digital commerce, e-commerce fails in B 2 B is because the sales team views it as competitive. It's going to take away my comment, my commission. To your point, I, I'm I'm not I don't want my client relationship shifting to a digital channel. That doesn't make any sense. It's 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 kind of it's cannibalizing my my value in the organization as a sales person. When in fact, the fascinating thing is um, they actually, when done well, sales, the sales team ends up loving e-commerce. Why? Because it actually allows them to become more strategic. It actually takes the load off of them to do things like placing a repeat order that the customer places all the time, day after day. You know, and, and Illumina being a good, good, a good example of this. So when you buy a $5 million piece of equipment from Illumina, which does this gene sequencing process, you have to put chemicals into this machine to run experiments, right? So these are scientists. They're running experiments in these machines in their labs. And those chemicals need to be reordered because you're running experiments all the time on these machines. Well, the sales rep at Illumina 
doesn't doesn't want to be sitting there taking the order for the chemicals. They're ordering the same chemicals all the time, <clears throat> taking the same order and then answering questions about, oh, is my order shipped or is it when's it going to be delivered? Or that's not the highest and best use of a salesperson's time. But that salesperson, when that customer places the order for the chemicals through the through the e-commerce platform, still gets commission on the order. So guess what? The salesperson earns more commission, right? And then they can spend their time working on strategic issues for the clients, thinking about what else do they need to be more efficient in their lab? How else can I better serve this customer? Or the salesperson now has more time to go out and find more strategic accounts they can sell to. So what it does is it takes, it levels the field for the, for the sales force. E-commerce does. If you're okay. not a high performing salesperson, you're going to be exposed, right? So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting um, evolution. Anyway, go ahead. So, so um, uh, is, is this plat? So let's take like for a moment. I have a, I have a question that uh, um, uh, where where this uh, what do you do when the cake is not getting bitter? But uh, let's take a moment uh, here with uh, with uh, Illumina um, case. Um, so uh, did this help them to extend like using the platform and like to build a marketplace, for example, out of it, like selling like third party uh um how do you say, um, liquids like on their platform so they're yes. not they're not doing that um something they talked about during the course of my work with them but um but what 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 they are what it has enabled them to do alex importantly is to capture more um share of wallet from their customer so oh, okay. we think about the different return on investment levers and this is on in the book as well you know, for, for e-commerce, uh, for a B2B company. One of the key ones is to make sure that you're um, growing your share with that customer. And in the case of Illumina, they're able to, because they understand how their, um, how their customers are using this equipment in the field, right? How they're using it for research. It's tied together through Internet of Things capabilities. So they can tell how their researchers are running experiments, What chemicals might they recommend to them? And the system will do this for them. And so they've automated personalized recommendations of the their, their B2B product. I mean, this is really, they're doing more than a lot of the consumer side is doing because they have real connection to the customer and they understand and can and tie their recommendations to the business outcome of the customer or the productivity of the experiment in the lab. And so they've they have demonstrated that they have been able to lift the um, uh, share of wallet. In other words, they're able to sell more product to the customer. And it's not just about the sale. I mean, it's not just one sided or self serving. The customer benefits because they're able they're able to get a better outcome from their experiments by using the right mix of chemicals. Don't ask me about the chemical mix because I'm not <laughs> I'm not a research scientist. Oh, but, I got it. I got it. But I got the concept it. is you, you get the concept. Yeah, but I got it. So, but in in this case, so okay, it's 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 it, that the case is fine for me, but the cake uh, grew much bigger. So it was like e-commerce okay. added like another uh, uh, another cake, I would say. <laughs> but in lots of cases, in lots of cases in in B two B, actually, um, uh, yeah, let's name it. You have to replace uh, uh, the, the 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 people that are on the field because it doesn't make any sense anymore because it's the relationship can be transferred into like a, a CRM system and usually much better served because the system knows better what was ordered last time. This is the system knows better what might be an add-on or next time. So have you seen cases where a transformation was managed uh, um, successfully where you uh, uh, where, where, where the let's say the cake st stayed stable 
<laughs> I like your analogy. So um, <clears throat> what I've seen, Alex, is um, to, your, to that point is um, redeployment of uh, within a company. I mean, sir, look, if there's efficiency gains from e-commerce, right? When the customer can go online and see their own order status or answer questions about products or see if there's inventory available or if, if things are compatible with each other. Those things replace calls to the call center. I'll give you, uh, so so there's some efficiency gains, certainly. And, and by that means you may not hire as many people. You maybe you shift roles. Maybe some people, you know, move out of the company. I, 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 I've, what I found interesting, even in mid-market companies, not, not the size of Illumina, but, you know, $100 million, $200 million companies, is, um, is really that shift of resources. And I'll give you an example. I was working with a, uh, an, a about $100 million dollar uh, uh, machine tools manufacturer. Um, they make, they make, um, you know, equipment that is used in machining shops to create, you know, uh, different products like, you know, sheet metal and, and steel and fabrication. And it's a, it's a, they supply OEMs, they supply companies that make products and they make the machines that do this, uh, CNC machines. And one of the things that he, he told me was that they're able to, through his e-commerce effort, take his um, some of his customer service staff and pull them into a reactive out of a reactive role which was you know people calling say hey where's my order you know what answer my question about this and he put them into a proactive role and by that I mean he took he said I'm gonna have um, these folks now calling my customers to make sure we're, we're meeting their needs that we're deepening the relationship that we're offering things we didn't you know that that they may not know we offer and he turned his team, I think it was about four or five people. He still had some customer service, but he turned team, a subset of them into these agents who were actually out, you know, more acting like uh, success managers for his company to make sure his customers were, were happy with their experience, deepening the relationships. And so I'm seeing that kind of behavior um, uh, happen. And then, if, look, if, you know, in some cases, sure, there's some there's some shift from the traditional call center, for example, to the uh, to e-commerce, and and sometimes mm -hmm. that means a reduction in headcount. But I've seen more of the, op the opposite, what I just described earlier. Okay, then let's uh, let's let's take another example. Maybe we find uh, we, we we find a loophole in in the next one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uh, um, the um, uh, so one example I was thinking about is um, uh, lots of uh, companies I um, I see in B 2 B they actually deny an e commerce project because they don't want to have any transparency about prices. Mm -hmm. So there are like huge niches, uh, huge business opportunities where you say, okay, we can put it online. Uh, but uh, eventually, without prices, this doesn't make any sense because then we have still like this lock-in kind of barrier, and there's no, there's no, uh, uh, there's no uh, economies of scale behind. There's no network, uh, no network effects. Um, have you seen this a lot in the US too? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so, how do you solve it? How do you solve it? Well, yeah, no, good question. So, um, so number one, it um, we see it, but it's it's somewhat legacy thinking right so if i if i may if we look back at the retail sector here in the us that whole channel conflict issue related to price and manufacturers selling direct to consumers brands selling direct to consumers you know that was a big debate 15 years ago in in the consumer side here in the us and we've seen what happens what's happened since then right so you know a lot of brands now selling directly to to consumers 
um, their publishing prices. I mean, they're selling on their websites. So B2B today here in the US, and you probably see this in Europe as well, is, is in some ways similar to where we were in consumer 15 years ago, which is the manufacturers are saying, I don't want to expose my price or any pricing of any type. Maybe I have some, you know, I don't want to give, let my competitors know what I charge, things like that. So that, this is a, it's a real issue. So I think there's two, there's two answers to your question. How do you solve it? One is that the market <clears throat> itself, I think, is going to evolve in the U.S. with business businesses that, and they are going to start seeing the benefits of actually, you know, exposing and going direct as a manufacturer to the, to the consumer or to the business buyer, right? Uh, and so I think that's just naturally going to happen as the opportunities, as the the breadth and size of the opportunity becomes more and more apparent to the manufacturers, the B two B manufacturers. I think that's that in and of itself is going to start. Leadership is going to it already is. Um, you know, saying, listen, we can't allow all of our channels to be to dictate everything to our end buyer. We need to start um, engaging directly, and that includes pricing. The second thing is um, that there it's not an all or nothing, right? And you, um, you know this, Alex. You, you guys implement these systems. <clears throat> you know, it's it's you know, in the world of B two B e commerce, there's also contract pricing and other things. So what I see companies doing here in the U.S. is they'll they'll go out with a price, which is a kind of a list price, a high price if something's exposed to the public. But then behind a login, they'll expose the contract price or some other type of pricing to their specific customers in a one to one basis. And, and the systems will support systems will support that. And I'm sure you guys support that one on one login pricing so that you don't have the conflict um, you know, or, or you don't, you know, a competitor doesn't see the pricing or, you know, other cu customers don't see the pricing. So, you know, can there other ways to game that? I'm, I'm sure. But, you know, at the end of yeah. the day, it's, the, uh, that's what we see. But the, the problem with this kind of one-on-one -on -one pricing is um, that's not usually restricted by the systems like, like Spryker or other systems, like, It's restricted by by the internal organization because sometimes it's like the, the responsible sales person for let's say you have like a B, the the, uh, the Brian Beck B 2 B commerce uh, business yeah so mm -hmm. here's like here's a special discount for you 2.6 percent on every second order something like that like written on a paper uh, stored in this desk only he knew about it so <laughs> right. so when the system is like uh, processing this order automatically you're not getting this 2.6 percent you know, know about it and the salesperson then then you're getting upset and this uh, this is making this uh, this whole uh, transformation stuff so so complicated uh, because because nobody followed rules in the past because there was no system that uh, uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, um, um, led to transparency so uh, uh so there's like uh, um uh, in, in german there's a proverb saying that the the the, the, um, the the devil is uh is, is living in the detail i don't know if this proverb yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, devil in the details yeah we say yeah, that too. It, it, it's true it, it's true in the ass okay let's 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 focus on another success case here so uh, it's it, it it got it got a little bit too german here uh let's uh <laughs> let's let's look at another success case you mentioned your book um kelly paper oh uh, sure um, it's a commercial paper conglomerate so It's like they're selling just paper, so or uh, or, or or what is it? Because yeah. the paper yeah. market overall, as I learned in another workshop, has some uh, has some challenges because there's less paper consumption than a couple of years ago, and it's like it's like oh, shrinking. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, well, pay, a couple things about the paper market. So Kelly uh, Paper is a privately held division of um, one of the largest paper companies in the United States, a company called Central National Goatsman. And um, I think I, I think I, I think I guess it's Goatsman is the I think the proper name. Um, at any rate, they're they're a very large uh, paper conglomerate. You know, several billion in sales. Kelly Paper is a division on the western half of the United States. The paper market is interesting because it is highly, as you, you know, number one, there's there's a lot of um, you know just overall trends in that market, as you mentioned, Alex, where there's less paper usage. I mean, as, as people become more and more digital, things shift to digital means. Um, uh, it's uh, people are, you know, they're printing less, they're, you know, newspapers are shifting to digital formats, et cetera. So there's tremendous competitive pressure in that market. Um, and, and so if you, you're trying to win share in a declining market, so, so small increases in efficiency, it's also a very commoditized market. So small increases in efficiency, small increases in how you serve your customer can be very impactful. And that's the reason I highlighted Kelly paper in the book. Is, is because they were able to, through some digital efforts, um, create some real nice business results. So they provide paper that's printed on by like the new, the LA Times, for example, right? Newspaper. Um, they, they provide business to business um, selling uh, services to and their products to commercial um, printers of postcards and business cards and, and things like that. So they provide a variety of different paper. Um, they've also um, gotten into a bit of the packaging industry. So, you know, the sort, the whole sort of cardboard packaging, and that actually is a growth area because of all the growth in e-commerce. So, um, so, you know, what do they do? Um, you know, the principal lesson from them and, and what's in the book is, really about making the information necessary in a commodity transaction available quickly and easily to the buyer. And that in, in their world, it's about, it's about availability of product when it can be delivered and actually less so about price. And what they found is that by enabling those quick access to that information, they've been live with the system probably five years now. So they were relatively early to the, to the, to the market with this. But by doing that, um, they were able to achieve higher gross margins through sales done through e-commerce. They have about half of their sales now that come from e-commerce. And they do it in a way, um, and, and they do it in, in part, one of the things they found is that because the call never happens to the salesperson, there's never a, an opportunity to, to even receive a discount. You know, the, 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 um, the sales folks would give discounts, just, hey, Joe, here's your, here's your 2% off just because you don't want to keep your business. But the convenience and the speed at which the customer can find the product availability, delivery information, et cetera, and get them the product quickly and to the right place on a defined date outweighed the price. And so they were actually able to charge 3% more. And that, that additional gross margin goes right to the bottom line of their company. So it's a, in a commodity business, it just, it, it's, it highlights the importance of um, the reason people buy through e-commerce. It's about convenience uh, and speed and ease of use, more so than price. And that's been documented in studies, but this is a case where it's come to life. But let, let, let's let's uh, stick with uh, Kelly for uh, for another minute. Um, do you think this kind of strategy will eventually help them to survive? Because the overall challenges of the industry are, are, are huge. Uh, um, the, uh, just the e-commerce uptake won't help them. So more demand from e-commerce. <laughs> uh, uh, um, the uh, and you have in this kind of businesses, as I know them, and I I, I did like one or two workshops with like um, paper companies. Um, 
the legacy in those companies is huge. So there's, uh, they eventually have to stick to paper. Otherwise, they have to become like a tech company. But that's uh, um, maybe that's not the fortune of, of Kelly here. So from what you've seen from Kelly, so is this really the way how they can win and become like the next, let's say, okay, we uh, Uber or Amazon of paper? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say WeWork, but that's not a success case anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, it's a good question, Alex. I mean, look, I think um, I think we have to recognize that digital and e-commerce is not in is not in and of itself something that's going to necessarily um, save an industry or save a particular type of company. Not save is maybe not the right word, but in and of itself, e-commerce and digital is a strategy, but it's really an enablement. It's a it's a it's a fundamental component of doing business. And it's a in and of itself, it's not necessarily a strategy unless you are a digitally native brand or so, you know someone who's who's more in that you know st started with digital and, and that's your whole business. For traditional B two B companies, e-commerce is a uh, it has become a uh, a necessary part of doing business, and mm -hmm. and and most businesses aren't there still. I mean, most about fifty percent in the U.S. So, mm -hmm. so I, I think it. You know, to answer your question, is is this effort Kelly's doing in and of itself going to sh shift the fundamental nature of people using less paper? Absolutely not. What it does, though, is it it, it gives them a, a foundation to um, to now uh, meet the customers' needs in other things, like I mentioned, packaging, right? So let's say, for example, um, that uh, Kelly was um, looking to embrace other growing markets, like they're doing. Um, these are these are things that when you when you have an e-commerce capability presence and you have muscle in the organization that understands it, you can then use that muscle and that capability and platform in these new markets as you get into them. So, so uh, you know, is it, it you know is it going to in and of itself you know save the business? No, um, or you know it, I'm, you know I don't I'm not I'm not projecting Kelly's going to go out of business. I, they're not. It's it's that's but in a commoditized business and we're using them as an example. Um, you know, it, it's a necessary part of being in business and it's, and it's a necessary part of being in, evolving the business, uh, to meet the customer expectations as you get into new, um, you know, sort of corporate strategies and, and product sets and things. Ultimately it's, it's about meeting the customer expectation, having something the customer wants and needs, right? So, uh, Illumina, for example, you know, that their, their, their product um, is there. I mean, it's, and it's allowing them e-commerce to better serve their customer. But the reason the customer is there is because their product is fantastic. It's the global leader in their, they're the global leader in their category and what they do. So eventually every company goes out of business, uh, but it's a question of time. As, as, Jeff, Bezos, <laughs> as Jeff Bezos says, yes. So, so um, <laughs> apart from uh, COVID-19 being the driver of such uh, transformational, and, and COVID-19 was not the driver of your success cases from the book. The book was published before uh, COVID. Correct. Uh, but about, apart from uh, COVID-19 being the driver of uh, transformation, um, one thing uh, that is uh, that is often discussed like in European conferences that, yeah, B2B and Amazon, that's already like a big thing. So from what you've seen, so paper is really special, heavy uh, B2B, in, uh, heavy industry. Is this really the case? So is Amazon in the US already like a driver for B2B commerce? Yeah. So in addition, uh, Alex, to my work in writing books and doing advisory work and such, I own a company with a business partner that we do, we do work on Amazon 
uh, and Amazon business specifically. We run programs for mid-market and large B2B manufacturers, mm-hmm. mainly B2B. And, um, and so, yeah, firsthand, I, was, I spent a lot of time with the teams at Amazon business. Uh, I spent a lot of time with companies working on their Amazon strategy. And so I can tell you firsthand, being in the trenches with these businesses, um, that Amazon is uh, absolutely not only creating urgency for action, you know, the inaction thing we talked about, but also is a um, is really changing the the dynamics of um, of the selling you know marketplace here in the U.S. So Amazon business, um, as I mentioned, I mentioned earlier, is is you know growing to tremendously, and it's it's fascinating, Alex. When you look at the numbers, there was a report that came out a few months back that showed the product counts of um, Amazon business in their in these B two B categories. Uh, versus the largest distributors in these categories. So take take a, take a category like fasteners, right? Fasteners, traditional B2B, screws, nuts, bolts, things like that, right? The largest distributor, traditional distributor of fasteners has something like half a million products on its website. And the uh, Amazon business has about one point, I think, four million fasteners on its website. So when you think about traditional value proposition distributors have to the marketplace here in the US, they are largely based on price and selection, right? So if you're being outgained in terms of selection by Amazon business, what does that say about your competitive advantage, right? So um, Amazon business, for example, is, I mean, they're, they're, it's not just about paper products or, you know, office products, or things like that, where people assume it's most of their B2B volume. In fact, it's it's not. It's in a lot of other categories. In 2019, Amazon Business did two billion dollars worth of dental products through its um, through its 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 B2B marketplace. Dental products. They're selling um, they're selling regulated products, class two medical devices, which are FDA certified products that require a medical license to use through Amazon Business. They're mm-hmm. doing things that the traditional distribution channels are not doing in some cases. And they're and they're and I'm they're I, I, they're poised to be a real um, and they already are a real sh- um, influencing a real shift in B two B selling channels to ecom. So yeah, short so answer your question. What, yeah, uh, <laughs> what was your what was your um, advice then for uh, Kelly Paper? Let's say they they establish a new B 2 B or B 2 C product line. Would you advise them to sell on Amazon? Absolutely. Um, if you um, if so so the implications of Amazon business are different for your type of business. If you're a manufacturer and your product stands on its own, in other words, you really differentiate based on the qualities of that product, I believe Amazon business is an evolution of your selling channels and it should be embraced. In other words, it's a distributor. Uh, it's, it's a new type of distributor. They have different rules. They have different ways of doing business. You have to understand that when you go into it, but they're a distributor and their re- and their customers preferences are shifting there. If you're a manufacturer, if you're a di- if if you are a distributor though, it has different implications for you. And we work with some distributors as well on Amazon. Number one, you need to understand what they're doing because they're setting the bar for your customer uh, for e-commerce. <clears throat> But also it provides an opportunity for you to uh, if with the right strategy to actually leverage that growth, to actually uh, work with them, learn from them, but also capture sales particularly if you have good supplier relationships with manufacturers, you can go back to your manufacturers and suppliers 
and say to them, listen, I'm going to enable you on Amazon. I want to be your Amazon department, right? I want to be your Amazon arm. And I want you to give me, you know, the rights to do that as one of the few distributors who's authorized. And that as a business model, we're implementing with a couple of different distributors in a couple categories. Um, uh, industrial products is one, for example. And that's working successfully because in some cases, manufacturers want to be able to defer to the distributor for things like service, even through even on Amazon orders. So if you've got a customer who is savvy with service and support, they they can support those Amazon orders with follow on. And so there's if there's real value add to the distributor, they can participate um, in that in that value chain with Amazon with the manufacturer. Does that make sense? Yes and no. So um, <laughs> two years ago, I probably would have agreed. Um, today, so one of my main mantras is you have to own customer success because mm -hmm. eventually, if you don't own customers, uh, if you don't access to the customer you will become like a logistics platform, a provider. So without any chance to differentiate on product or product margin. Um, and um, whenever you help Amazon to become more potent in your category, uh, the more you help customers uh, to educate on that, even this category, this complicated uh, medical uh, uh, dental stuff uh, can be ordered on Amazon, the harder it will get in the future to own the direct access back from the customer. So I, I totally align, I, I'm, I'm aligned with you um, saying, yes, you can, you, can, you can use Amazon as a platform to elevate your, like, your own processes and then like in parallel build your own commerce platform. With like a long-term strategy, uh, um, it's, uh, I, I I've, I've described like eight years ago in a, in a, in a keynote, uh, um, first time Amazon is a prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, <laughs> when you are in the prisons, it is a prisoner's dilemma. So you can you can get you can get out if you're if you if your category is in, you tr can try to get out of the of the prison, but then still the states are in in the prison, right? So you have to stay <laughs> in the prison, and the only chance is to become the best prisoner, which is still a shitty it's, it's a shithole position, right? Because <laughs> in general, you don't want to be the prisoner; you want to be free. Yeah, well, prisoner. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, Alex, uh, to react to that, I mean that's that's a great point. Look, I, this is um. The nuances of an Amazon strategy, I think, are different for every company. And a lot of it depends on what their really strength is. So first, let me say, Amazon shouldn't be on its, it's not an e-commerce strategy in and of itself, in my opinion. Amazon is a part of an e-commerce strategy, right? To your sure. point. Um, here, here. I like to say in your here, here. That's right. You're here. <laughs> we, need a, we need a drink here. Um, the, uh, but yes, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that the customer relationship is very important. I think actually that, and that's what's driving a lot of, you know, this, this transformation, the understanding that the, the customer's needs have changed and that, you know, they, um, they, they now want that relationship to be enabled digitally. So first and foremost, I think I, I completely agree with you. The uh, Amazon is, is a part of a, of a strategy, not the entire strategy. Okay. So I, I agree with you there. That said, I would challenge, um, I would challenge the notion that you're not, you're also can't two things. You can't control my opinion, the customer's preferences in terms of where they research and shop. So in the U S we're seeing, you know, tremendous gains in search, um, preference shifting to Amazon. So Amazon being a search engine, really in the statistic is 70% of product searches in the United States start on Amazon, not on Google, not in other places, 
and that's increasingly happening in B2B. So you, you've, got this, <clears throat> you've got this search engine out there that if you're not positioned in it in some way, you're risking your relevance and you're allowing other people into the conversation. So, um, and, and here's, and here's a great, here's a great example. I was on the phone two weeks ago with one of the largest, uh, abrasive tools manufacturers, um, in, in, in this, uh, actually they're not, they're not even a U.S. based company, but we were looking at, we were looking at their tools on Amazon and we were looking at searches around the, you know, we, so we searched like abrasive grinder or something like that, right? It's a traditional tool. <clears throat> you know, expensive tools used in industrial type commercial applications. Um, and when we searched the general terms, Alex, when we looked at, you know, abrasive grinder, we were seeing, we were looking at uh, a whole series of manufacturers they had never heard of. Uh, and they've been in this business for 150 years or something. And it's a long time. So they have their list of, of manufacturers they think about as competitors. These are new products and they're selling, some of them were selling millions of dollars a year individual products. So, so that I, I raise that point because the dynamics are shifting. And if you're not in the conversation at all on Amazon, you're risking that shift away from your product, right? So, yeah. The prisoner's <laughs> dilemma. There you yeah, go. I, uh, you know, I, I, we will we will come to the last question in a minute, but I have uh, <laughs> I have to do like this uh, this small um, uh, this small anecdote here yeah. uh, because this reminds me on one um, uh, I had like one workshop. This was like 12, 13 years ago, where uh, main product searches were still happen on Google, not on Amazon. Right. And then we told the board of directors that yeah, when you search for this kind of fashion stuff, they are selling. They are not showing up your company, but they show up like Zalando in Germany. And then uh, because they did a much better job on like optimizing uh, for Google, and then the answer of the of one of the board members for us, uh, but Mr. Graf, so that that only shows um, that uh, Google is working incorrect. So because we are still number one. <laughs> and, uh, I love uh, that. That's right. That is, uh, yeah, yeah. So so uh, and that leads me to my last question for this uh, for this uh, um, episode. What are the one or two things that B two B companies must have in place? Uh, uh, before uh, launching like B2B commerce um, um, effort. And maybe maybe it has something to do with the org chart itself. Uh, it sure does. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you pulled that right out of the book there, Alex. So um, I think, that, you know, the number one thing is, um, is the leadership commitment. And it, so when you don't have the uh, corporate spot, like this, the top level, the CEO talking about this or the board, and behind it fully, it does not succeed uh, because you have to change uh, the way in B2B companies, the way that they um, think about things. You have to create some uncomfortable situations. We talked about the sales team, right? Um, even the marketing team, other even even the fulfillment capabilities. And you just, you know, a, a traditional B2B company is shipping things in bulk, for example, to on a PO, you know, they're shipping 50 cases of something over here, thousand cases over there in the, in the world of e-commerce, B2B e-commerce, you're breaking that down into smaller shipments, individual shipments. You're probably supporting smaller customers uh, through e-commerce. Uh, it, it shifts a lot of things in the organization. And when business has been just good enough for you know 50 or a hundred years, or it's been good, um, it takes, it takes real um, leadership to power through that. Uh, the change that's necessary. It also it, it also ties into who you bring in to help support you. So oftentimes I'll find that companies will hire, 
you know, I, I make the joke in the book, they're, they're 24 year old nephew because they know how to com- code computers, uh, you know, write computer code. <laughs> but it's not about that. You have to give your leader real executive authority and, oh. and align them with a P&L. And, and what I see a lot of companies here doing is hiring out of B2C. But you know, when it happened in B2C 10 years ago, the nephew was 14. So at least it's, uh, <laughs> uh, that's right. it's still the same nephew. That's so, right. That's right. The uh, same nephew. He already fucked up B2C. So it's like, uh, there's still a learning curve behind it. That's so, right. so from, from what I heard so far, it's like we are, we are getting to the end of this, uh, this episode. Uh, uh, I expect that's not the last session uh, we can have on B2B. There are success cases. There are a lot more traps uh, than success cases in market. So the, for the one that we do want to learn about these, these traps, uh, 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 read the book i really can recommend it uh and uh, uh and uh, i'm i, I will really look deep dive for uh, looking forward into what kind of uh, success cases we're going to see in the in the future um uh usually i close uh, when i do like keynotes or workshop i say okay it's it, it will never be as easy as it is today because people are looking for an easy strategy in the future so it only gets harder so for the one that are, are listening right now uh, uh i'd rather today than tomorrow um brian thank you for your time it was a, a really entertaining uh session and uh, uh and see you hopefully in the third episode in the future awesome thank you alex for having me it was fun <laughs>